Amen. <clears throat> Thank you, Larry, for your prayers. Uh, if you will, join me in Isaiah chapter 14. Uh, we will mainly emphasize verses 12 through 14. We'll, that were, that's where we will uh, spend our main focus. But I would try to uh, do the entire chapter and a lot of the book of Isaiah justice as we look at it in its proper context. Uh, while you're flipping, um, we do want to I do want to thank Alex, um, even in his absence, for uh, giving me this opportunity once again to stand before uh, you beautiful people. Um, I mean, it's just amazing when I stand out and see Avery smiling at me and, and Roy smiling at me and different people like that, that, that you guys look good as a unit, that the different colors, the different backgrounds, the different um, just everything, the different um, views on different topics. It, it does not prevent us from coming together and worship. And I believe that this is uh, a very small glimpse of what heaven will look like. Um, it would not be one color. That would be boring, you know. Uh, so I do want to thank Alex for that. To the elders and deacons of this um, church, they do a great job of keeping us um, on course for our mission and vision and um, helping guiding us uh, uh, as they take seriously that we are under their care and they are there to help um, us through different difficulties and to be with us in times of praise. Um, so thank you, deacons and elders. And to all of you, my friends and family, we're all part of um, God's holy family. And it is a privilege to stand before you on today. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Let's look at the pitfall of pride. Many of you may recall um, when Cassius Clay, uh, later on to be known as Muhammad Ali, was in the ring with Joe Frazier. This particular fight is known as the fight of the century. And it has been recorded that before the fight, uh, Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali was just talking noise, talking about how Joe Frazier was going to be too slow, that he was going to be trying to hit me, this is what he said, with these little short hooks. And he said, I'm just going to be moving out the way. I'm just going to be moving out the way. And I'm going to be saying, is that all you got, champ? It has also been recorded by the referee of that fight that when Muhammad Ali stepped in the ring, he told Joe Frazier, you know you're in the ring with God. In which Joe Frazier said, if you're a guy, you're in the wrong place tonight. This fight left Muhammad Ali with his first career professional loss. What is it about pride that causes us to think higher of ourselves than we ought to? It is the mindset of the 2007 Alabama team 
facing the five and six Louisiana Monroe. They're from the Sun Belt Conference. Alabama was the 24-point favorite. And after the game, the quarterback said to the reporter, we were not supposed to lose. We're Alabama. We were supposed to win. What is it about pride? It is echoed in the 1965-66 National College Basketball Championship where Texas Western versus Kentucky, if you've seen Glory Road, the coach believed that black athletes were inferior to white athletes. And so since Texas Western was starting for the first time ever, all five starters were black or African-American, the coach knew with confidence that he was going to win the championship for Kentucky because blacks were uncoachable. What is it about pride? Pride is the foundation of the 1936 Olympics held in Germany where Hitler wanted the Olympics in Germany so that he could show off the white German man, which he called the supreme race. He ended up storming out of the Coliseum after Jesse Owens, a black man from America, after he got his fourth gold medal. What is it about pride? We can find pride in the classic theological story of the tortoise and the hare. Many people, they tell the story and they, they use it for motivation. They go to this, this underdog team and they say, you can beat the rabbit. You can beat them. That's not what the story is about. The story of the tortoise and hare is not about the turtle winning the race. It's about the rabbit losing it. He took a nap in the middle of the race. How prideful can you get? Pride can be funny because I can tell you story after story of athletes and other places of competition where they call self-inflicted defeat because of their arrogance and pride. And it can be funny. I laugh at a lot of them. But what happens when pride causes the lives of 1,517 people? Unsinkable. That's what they said about the Titanic. The people that was in charge of the Titanic were so confident in this inability to sink that they left behind extra lifeboats. You know that, right? They did not bring all the lifeboats and life jackets with them because there was no need to bring it. What happens when pride causes the lives of that many men, women, and children? It was recorded that the Titanic was said, not even God himself can sink it. And now the unsinkable ship has been sunk and is in the bottom of the ocean. What happens? Pride. Now, pride is nothing new. You, you do understand that, right? There is nothing new under the sun. The Bible gives us plenty of examples and warnings about pride. Perhaps the most dangerous type of pride that we are warned of it's spiritual pride. We find this in Luke 18 when Jesus tells us the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector under the same roof in the same temple and synagogue praying to God. And the Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not this guy. 
Lord, I just want to thank you that I don't have the clothes he has on. That the job he works is such a disgraceful job. Lord, I thank you. That, that the woman that he's with, he's probably not even married to her. Lord, I just thank you. And the tax collector, the, with the little boldness he's able to muster up to approach God's throne, simply says, Lord, have mercy. Now, when we're looking at the Pharisee and tax collector, we're not looking at the Pharisee versus the sinner. They're both sinners. My question for you then is, do you wrestle with what I call so eloquently Phariseeism? Do you have Phariseeology going on in your mind? I remember in high school and college that I was that guy. I was walking around and I said, Lord, at least I'm not doing that, right? I'm not smoking that. I'm not drinking that. I'm not doing what she's doing. I'm not saying what he's saying. I didn't steal that. Because stealing a piece of bubble gum in my mind was way different and on a totally different level than robbing a bank. But understand that on God's uh, standard, it's the same. God, I thank you. And then I end up meeting this guy named Albert McGowan at Jackson State. And he ended up telling me one time that, Lyle, you, you're not supposed to be comparing yourself to other people. They're not the standard. You need to compare yourself to Christ. And when you realize you don't match up to Christ, you're in trouble. Do you? Do you wrestle with Phariseeism? Do you, do you look at the next man or your neighbor and say, God, I just thank you that my job don't cause me to have to scrub toilets. Do you? Do, do you? do you look at the next person and say, God, I just thank you that I did such a great job raising my children. Do you? Do you feel like you're so great and so flawless of a person that sometimes it's hard for you to even find the right church to go to? Do you? Pride comes, but it comes with many warnings. The Bible is very adamant of letting you know that this is a dangerous thing to deal with and to have. Perhaps the, 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 the most vocal and obvious uh, warnings of pride can be found in Proverbs. Pride comes and then disgrace. Proverbs 11.2. Pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride comes and then you're brought low. Proverbs 29, 23. See, pride is that thing that is going to cause us to ask even he or she that was at the highest to ask him one day how you are falling. So when we're looking at Isaiah, we need to look at it first and compare it to the rest of the prophets. They have a rhythm that they go by. They have this, this thing that they continue to do, a pattern. And what all the prophets do is they tell the people of God, follow and obey God. 
People kind of, you know, don't do it. So they begin to warn them of punishment that will happen if you don't follow and obey God. Usually for the Israelites, it will be you'll be um, in a land of exile or you'll be captured and be another country slave. Then after this happened, because they never decided to obey God, the prophet, while in bondage, would tell the people to repent. And once they repent, they are told by the prophet, God will save and deliver you. So Isaiah is no different. You look at Isaiah and you get to chapter 1, verse 21. Is it, Isaiah tells the people in chapter 1 how the faithful city has become unfaithful. I use that term. And then you look at Isaiah chapter 8 and he begins to warn them of what will happen at, by the hands of the Assyrians if you do not repent and if you do not turn from your wicked ways. And now we get to chapter 14, why they are in bondage, because apparently they did not turn from their wicked ways. And they received some good news that this pride that led them to idolatry and to do whatever they want, this pride is now going to set them free because it belongs to somebody else, the king of Babylon. And so... You look at chapter 14, and it opens with restoration in verse 1. Because the God that will not have mercy in chapter 9, in verse 1, he will now have mercy and compassion. You get to verse 2, and there's a reversal, there's a word play with it, that the captives will soon capture their captors. Say that 10 times really fast, and I'll give you some money. Then you look at the description of the king. In verse 14, in chapter 14, and it's terrible. If you go through chapter 14, the early parts of it, you hear the words like this. He's an oppressor. He's wicked. He ruled the nations in anger. My brother says God will not tolerate this. Even if they are a wicked people that God is using as instrument of wrath and judgment on the Israelites, he's not going to tolerate injustice. And it, it's really hard to believe that even today when we're seeing so much killing and violence and innocent people being killed and harmed, but God will not allow injustice. There will be a day that he's going to turn it around because he agrees with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. where he says injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. God won't allow it. And so now in chapter 14, we get to verse 10 and 11, and the people are looking at this king, and they're asking him this question. Or they're saying to him, you've become as weak as we are. You have become like us. And then Isaiah gives what I call a sanctified speech, a, a, a holy homily. This is a taunt, a theological taunt on this king in verse 12. And he says in the beginning, how you are fallen. How you are fallen. How you are fallen from the heaven. You know, kings do fall. People in high position that are wicked, people that misabuse their power and their money, they do fall. This, this phrase, how you are fallen, it reminds me of uh, David's reflection of Saul's death. In 2 Samuel verse 1, chapter 1, verse 25, where he asks the question, or he states out loud, how the mighty have fallen. 
because Saul has committed suicide. So it, it, you, you hear this thing that, that Saul was the first king of Israel. If you don't know that, get ready to catch up with history. That Saul was the first king of Israel. He came from the smallest tribe. And not only the smallest tribe, but within that tribe, the smallest and the poorest family. And God chose him. And he gets to the point where he allows pride and arrogance take over. He forgot where he came from. He forgot where he came from. And he gets so prideful and arrogant, and he gets really frustrated because the people are chanting, Saul has killed a thousand, but David has killed ten thousand. And, and, and so he gets to this point where he decides, I'm going to do something to make me look good. Because pride tells you you deserve to look good. And what does he do? He sacrificed things that he was not supposed to sacrifice. One, because he's not a priest. He wasn't a Levite. But second, because God did not tell him to do it. And this leads to one of the most famous phrases that is probably misused the most as well as uh, I know the plans I have for you and other things. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Saul didn't want to obey God. That wouldn't make him look good. The people begin to ask him, are you not going to sacrifice stuff? And instead of obeying God, he wants to look good in front of the people. So Saul gets to this point where he is trying to be like God. And Samuel comes to him and he tells him, when you were small in your own eyes, when you were little in your own eyes, when you were humble, God was able to use you, and he anointed you as king. My brother and sister, when you're small, you, do you do most of you remember the time when you were small in your own eyes? For some of you, that may have been so long ago that you might have to think a little while. That when you were small in your own eyes, when you, when you leaned completely on God, you remember that time? When, when, when you would not put God to the test, do you remember that time when you did not feel worthy of any of God's blessings and favor? Do you remember that time? It was that, at that time that God could use you. Because Paul tells us when I'm weak, when I'm low, that's when he's strong. My brothers and sisters, it is important to remember that when we attempt to be like God, we hinder his work of making us like him. When we attempt to be like God, we hinder his work to make, it, to make us like him. Oh, how you are falling from heaven. Who could this be? Who could this be? It, 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 it reminds me, as, I, as you read chapter 14, you hear the things that happen to this guy. It sounds like Daniel chapter 4 with King Nebuchadnezzar, where he was walking outside one day, and he just looked out of the city of Babylon. He said, oh, how great is Babylon. And he was telling people, have you seen how great of a job I've done to make this Babylon so great? And the Bible says in chapter 4 that while words were still on his tongue, while words were in his mouth, God said something to him. And he said, basically, you fool. And he tells him this. He says, you will be driven from among men. You will eat grass like an ox. 
His body will be wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grow as long as eagle's feathers and until his nails were like bird claws. It sounds like, if you read chapter 14 of Isaiah, it sounds like this is Nebuchadnezzar. But here's the problem. It can't be Nebuchadnezzar because he ends up being restored later on in Daniel chapter 4 and 5. He comes to repentance. But here's what pride does. Apparently for this king in Isaiah 14, pride will get you to the point that even when God has brought you down, you're too prideful to repent. You're too prideful to say, I'm sorry. So it's not Nebuchadnezzar. Who could this be? It could be an Assyrian king. Uh, Assyria was was this just very bad uh, group of people, this country. And they would do some horrible things to people. And sometimes, every now and then, they would capture Babylon. And Babylon was such a great country is such a large amount of land that when you conquer Babylon, you're not just known as the Assyrian king anymore. You're really just called the Babylon king. So it could be a Syrian king. We don't know. Some people say that this is actually just a prophecy of Satan's fall. And what they do is they look at what Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, where he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. And they look at Revelation 9, 1 and they, they put it in this context. Oh, Essentially, what they, what they like to do and argue is they say, just as David's kings that are on the throne points to Christ's future reign, so does the wicked kings that are dethroned point to Satan's future dethronement. The problem with that would be David's kings point to something that will happen. It's hard for the wicked kings to point to Satan's dethronement because he's already been dethroned. Like, Satan is no longer in charge. You do understand that he's not up high anymore. Jesus said it himself. I saw him fall like lightning. So, so this, this can't be it. I would just look at it in this context in Isaiah 14 and say that this is a Babylon king, that Isaiah is seen or will see fall. So now that we've gotten to this point, let's look at the language of pride. Let's look at the language of pride. Let's look at the language of pride. We see a lot of I will in this passage. There's no I in team, but it, it is in pride, right? Okay. So this sounds like that rich fool in Luke 12. Remember he walks out on his porch or whatever one morning, and he realizes, man, I got a lot of fruit and grapes growing. It's too much for me. It is so much, I won't be able to eat all of this. So I will build a bigger barn. And I will store it in this bigger barn. And I will keep it all to myself. And I will just look at how much I got. And what happens? God says, you fool. This day I, I require your soul. You're going to die today. And he's not in trouble for having a lot. I have nothing against People that have a lot of stuff. Well, his problem is he realizes I can't do, I cannot use all of this. And instead of serving the poor, serving those that are in need, instead of serving those that can actually use it, he would rather keep it to himself and and be proud of how much he has. You fool is what God says, not me. My brother and sister, do you, like this king in Isaiah 14, 
work at the Apple store? Do you manufacture a bunch of eye products? Do you? I will live here. I will move here. I will go to this college. I will send my children to the best schools. I will spend my money on this. Do you? Do you, do you constantly see yourself with all these I wills? What happens when your I will bumps into God and he laughs and says, you forgot about my will? What happens? Our wills must conform to God's will, which will lead us to echo uh, James 4.15. You remember when he says, let us not go around saying what I would do today or what I would do tomorrow. He says, but say this, if the Lord wills it, if the Lord allows it, if the good Lord gives me the ability, I will do this. Don't make promises on what you can do because you have no abilities. Like the atheist that says there is no God, he's only able to say it because God gave him the breath to say it. You have nothing of your own. So if the Lord allows it, if the Lord wills it. Uh, my grandma used to say, the Lord will it. That's it. I, I didn't know what she was talking about. We can learn not to say I will by looking at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. In most of his prayers, actually. But Jesus on his knee, sweating blood, sweating tears as thick as blood, uh, says, not my will, but thy will be done. He can teach us the language of humility. Pride tells us to say to God, I can figure this out. Humility tells us, God, I need you to guide me each and every day. Pride says, I can take the lead. But humility echoes Lecrae when he says, I can play the background. Pride to ask, what will God do for me? Humility says, God has done more than enough. Pride asks, says, I will make it on my own. But humility says, without God, I cannot stand. Jesus can teach us the language of humility. Now, don't confuse humility with humiliation. Humility is a good thing. Humility is a virtue that is very, very rare. It is so rare that most sentences in America starts with me, myself, or I. Some people are, are so conceited that it don't, they, they don't use one. They don't use one uh, I or me or myself. They will say, well, me, myself, and then they will say personally. That's a lot of I's at the beginning of that sentence. I get the point. This is about you. Jesus can teach us, though, the, the language of humility. Humility is a good thing. Humility, a humble person, gives credit where it's due. It's not false humility. You, you don't see uh, great painters such as, uh, I don't know, why did I say painters like I know painters? Huh? No, I'm just saying, Mark, Michelangelo, Donatello, you don't, you don't see Rembrandt looking at their, their, their paintings. And saying, that's terrible. No, I'm too humble to say that looks good. No, that's false humility. What you're doing then is actually denouncing the gift that God's given you. Humility, though, is whether you created that or not, you would still be able to say, it is nice. Nobody makes a Ferrari and says it's ugly. That would be false humility and a lie. So it's a difference between humility and false humility. Humility is, this is what C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Is simply thinking of yourself less. 
So the Bible tells us one should not think higher than we ought to. It actually is understood that you should not think of yourself lower than you ought to. Have a right perspective of who God has you to be and who he has made you to be. Humiliation, though, is a bad thing. Humiliation is a painful emotion that, that we feel when we've been shamed just, and, and just far above than we ever thought we'd be shamed. That's humiliation. And, and, and ironically, my brothers and sisters, Jesus' humility led to his humiliation. Because he stepped down from the throne of, from the throne of glory and stepped into Mary's womb. His humility led to his humiliation. He, he had to be born through Mary, even though Mary would have to be born again through him. And he was laid in a manger. His humility led to his humiliation. His humility led him to walk into Jerusalem, not, on a, not in a chariot, but on a donkey. His humility led him to be humiliated. His humility allows us to now properly look at Isaiah 14, where we will no longer be under the rule of, as you see in verse 12, the son of dawn, but we'll be under the kingship of the son of David. That yes, in Isaiah 14, he gives us a prophecy of uh, the king of Babylon, but in Isaiah 53, he gives us the prophecy of the king of kings. And he says he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of, a pe- of our peace was upon him. His humility led to his humiliation, where he allowed him, when he allowed them to beat him all night long, he allowed them to spit in his face, he allowed them to tear his clothes from his body, he allowed them to stretch him wide on the cross, when he could have at any moment called down legions of angels. But his humility allowed him to not count himself equal with God, even though he was. His humility led to his humiliation. And he stayed on that cross for a long time, taking on God's wrath, being humiliated in front of all the people, because the cross is the worst way to die. It's the most embarrassing way to die. It is for the most ruthless of criminals. It's for the most violent offenders. But his humility led to his humiliation. And what's even better is that his humiliation led to his glorification. Because three days later, he rose from the grave out of a borrowed tomb. See how humble he is? He borrowed a tomb. And if you borrow something, you got to give it back, right? Some of you may not agree. But he, brought, he gave it back and he rose with all power and said it. But then he also says this, because his humiliation leads to his glorification. He says this, I got all power in my hands. But he reminded the disciples that I told you I'm going to have to leave eventually to go and prepare a place for you. And common sense says that if somebody's going to prepare a place for you, they must come back and receive you. So that where he is, there we may be also. And this time when he comes back, it's going to be a good thing if you're in Christ. Because he's not going to come humbly. He's going to come basking in his glory. He's not going to come in on a donkey. He's going to come in on a white horse. And he's going to demand that every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So if any of you have issues with your pride, let me tell you this. Let not the wise boast in his wisdom. 
and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows the Lord, and that the Lord, that you know that the Lord practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. Christ, uh, Paul said it like this, I choose not to boast in anything but in the cross. Father, we thank you and we love you. Humble us that we may have the humility to ask for your saving grace and your saving love. Remind us that it's not about you, for men are only here for a short breath. It is not about us, but it's all about you. In Christ's name, amen.